So we're going to be in John 18. We're moving through the Gospel of John. So far it's only taken 49 weeks, I believe. So we're just cooking, all right, cooking through the Gospel. I think Chuck Smith did it in like 12 sermons because he would just go through, no, he didn't, but he would go through it so fast and just pour so much in. It was awesome. But um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Um, first couple of announcements. Number one, um, Bible study this week. Also, start praying for summers in the park. We'll start meeting out at um, what's called Parfait Park in probably around June. We'll see how the weather's going and everything like that. Let's pray that we have sunshine. Last summer, how many times did it rain? Like twice, I think. That was our best summer so far. Every other summer, it's been torrents of rain just pouring down on us. So um, just keep praying for that. Also, um, we are doing podcasting now. So if you want to go back, re-listen to a sermon, like I still need to go back and re-listen to Ian's and uh, just get that into my brain and heart a little more deeply. Um, it's always a great thing to do. I remember when I was at Horizon Littleton, and uh, I would get to sit through Saturday night service and then one on Sunday, and it would be the, pretty much the same message. You know, it doesn't always come out the same way twice, but um, it would just really ingrain God's Word into my heart, and I just loved doing that. Um, I would always, you know, either take different notes or just do something different. But um, we're doing that also on Facebook, um, but that does not give anybody license to skip out on church, right? We are called to come and love each other. We're come to call and worship together. The people here in Golden and just who walk by in this recreation center should say, what a faithful bunch of people to come here every week and praise the Lord. It's just awesome. And, um, but we are commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Hebrews. So we don't want to do that. We want to Come, we want to worship, we want to have God's word built into our hearts and our lives. And um, so I just encourage everybody not to, not to take Facebook or podcasting or anything else as a substitute, but only as a supplement. You know, like if you don't get enough protein through the day, what do you do? You drink protein shakes. You know, you need some more of the word throughout the week. That's why you listen to the radio. That's why you listen to podcasts or go on to Facebook or something like that. But it's not a substitute so let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you so much for bringing us here. I thank you so much for your word, that you reveal yourself to us in it. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us today. Lord, we come here, we come here to meet with you, not to just go through rituals like the rest of the world religions do, but actually come here to literally meet with you. So help us to do that. I pray that you'd be here with us. Lord, that you'd forgive us of our sins, of our lusts, of our failings, Lord, and our devotion to you. God, we fail every day. And yet you are so compassionate. You're so gracious to us. I pray that you'd forgive the lusts of our hearts, those things that war against the Spirit, that war against your kingdom because we want to build our own kingdom, our own comforts. pour into our own desires. Lord, please forgive us. 
And we know that you do by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice on that cross for us. We have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have justification. And Lord, even more, we have adoption. Lord, it's like your blessings never stop. And they're all in light of our failings and our sin. So we praise you, Lord. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So John 18, let's just read through to verse 11. We're going to look at the arrest of Jesus. So starting in verse 1, and just back up just a little bit. Remember what's happened. So you have the upper room discourse. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Judas goes out to betray him. They celebrate the Passover together. And then they go out. They go out. They start walking through Jerusalem from the upper room to, um, I believe they went through the Temple Mount just by reading things and, um, and, and looking at things. Even when Jesus says, um, uh, I am the vine, and he talks about the work of the Spirit and everything, I think he was doing it in the Temple Mount. I can't prove that, but it's just a high, it's a suspicion that I have. Plus, I believe that he went through, out through that eastern gate, okay, to go cross the Kidron, go up the Mount of Olives. So here we are in chapter 18. After he prays for himself, he prays for his disciple, and he prays for all believers. For all believers. He prayed for us 2,000 years ago. Isn't that fantastic? So verse 1, chapter 18, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. It should just be, I am, not I am he. He is italicized. It was supplied by the translator, so I'm just going to say I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So first off, let's go back, look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, spoken everything from chapters 13 to 17. When he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. That is, again, out of the Temple Mount. They start descending Mount Moriah there. And they go through the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So the brook Kidron, it's, it's really a wadi. So here, here we have a map. So you have the Kidron Valley that runs here. Here's the Temple Mount. The Kidron actually starts way up here, and it comes around, 
and it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. Okay, so this is important to remember. Over here, you have the Mount of Olives. All right, when we are in Jerusalem, you can go to the next slide. This isn't a picture I took while I was in Jerusalem. They are all still on my very, very old Dell computer, and I need to get them off one of these days. So here you have um, the Mount of Olives. You have tons of graves, thousands of Jewish graves on the Mount of Olives, and going down all the way to the Kidron Valley. And so actually, I believe this is, we walked right here. If you look, there's a wall right here. This is actually kind of a staircase or a path that you walk down to, and then the, um, the Golden Gates right up there. And so um, it's the Kidron Valley that's between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. Go ahead and go to the next one. And so you can see here, these are olive groves, so you can see why it would be called the Mount of Olives. Tons of olive trees. And then again, there's the Golden Gate right up at the top here. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives, and you look out, and you're actually in the olive grove where Jesus would have been. It's, it doesn't, it's not that far away. You look and you see this incredible sight of the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate, where Jesus, when he comes back, will ride through and begin to reign on Zion. And so um, this is where they're going. Jesus goes down, he descends from the Temple Mount and crosses the Kidron. Now, the Kidron is also where the blood of the sacrifices would go. And um, a few years after this, Josephus is writing, and one of the Roman emperors wanted to census Israel, wanted to take a census, find out how many people were there in Jerusalem. And so they can't find out how many people, so they start counting the sacrificial lambs. And they count 256,000 lambs that were slain for the Passover. So just imagine that. In just a couple days, 256,000 lambs are going to be slain. All that blood would be put into these canals, and then it would come out and go into the Mount of Olives. And I'm sure they had an aqueduct that fed into the, the Temple Mount, so it would probably push the blood out. But that Kidron Valley would just be red with the blood of the sacrifices. And remember, Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his disciples but the Passover had not actually started yet. For a Galilean Jew, for somebody in northern Israel, they celebrated the Passover according to a different calendar. And so they celebrated it the day before. So when Jesus and his disciples go down to celebrate, it's the day before the 14th of Nisan. But the Passover for, for Judah had not started yet. So I'm sure some of those Sacrificial lambs have already been sacrificed. So when Jesus is crossing this brook or this wadi, what do you think they saw? The blood of lambs in the Kidron. And again, it is a wadi, so that means what a wadi is, is it means that it, it's not a continual flow of water. That only during the rainy seasons you could get a flowing brook or even some torrents coming through. But I just wonder, what would Jesus, or what would his disciples be thinking of as they're crossing the brook Kidron, leaving Jerusalem? What would come to their mind? What scriptures would just come alive to them? Could it be King David? When Absalom, his own son, betrays him? 
He commits treason, and he um, takes over the kingdom of Israel. It says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 23, it says, And the, all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people crossed over towards the way of the wilderness. So David's going up there. Everybody's weeping. He's crossing the, the Kidron and ascending the Mount of Olives. And he was, finds out, as he's doing that, that he has been betrayed by his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. It says in Psalm 41.9, speaking of Ahithophel, it says, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we also read that back in John, right? Even my own familiar friend, whom I have trusted, has lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of Judas, that was a picture of what was going to happen in the future to the Messiah, to David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, right? That Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. And so can you just imagine the disciples this just coming alive in their minds? Also, what else would they be thinking? Or what would Jesus be thinking as he's crossing this? He's going to cross it again. Or he's going to come to the brook Kidron again. I want you guys to go to Joel chapter 3. So to find Joel, go to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Dan, Hosea, and then you have Joel. So if you find the book of Daniel, just go forward a couple books and you'll find Joel. It's right before Amos. So Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations." They have also divided up my land. So he's gonna, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to go to that brook, Kidron, which is then going to be called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the only place in all scripture where the Kidron Valley is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And we're going to find out why and how we know that it's the valley or the brook Kidron. And why is it called a valley? Hmm. Actually, I'll just tell you now. So in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says this, And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, okay, we're looking at it right now, the Mount of Olives, just on the other side of the brook Kidron, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it towards the south. So it's going to be split. There's going to be a huge valley leading up to the brook Kidron. And so, why is it called the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. Yahweh has judged. And so, this is going to become a huge valley. It's no longer going to just be a brook. 
going to be a huge valley. And this is why God's going to judge, why Jesus is going to judge. Because they have divided up his land. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as a payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And he's going to list all these sins that the nations of the world do against Israel. And that would probably be during the tribulation period. I could only imagine that the UN is going to be in a lot of trouble by the time this day happens with what they've been trying to do with Israel. But then I want to skip down to verse 12. And we're going to look at this judgment. It says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near, the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. So again, this is the judgment on the nations directly after the tribulation period. So just think about this for a moment. This hasn't been fulfilled yet, but from here on, it could be fulfilled just after seven years. Because we don't know when the tribulation is going to start. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen. We don't know when the Antichrist is going to start setting up his kingdom and persecuting the Jews. But because of that persecution and because of the nations that come against Israel, they will be judged in the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Brook Kidron. Now go to Zechariah chapter 14. So to find Zechariah, go to Matthew and go backwards two books. So you got Malachi and then Zechariah right before it. So Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verse 1. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So, the Antichrist, the nations of the world are going to come against Jerusalem. Right? The city is going to be attacked. Women ravished, raped, houses rifled, looted. It's going to be a chaotic mess. But there will be a remnant who stays in Jerusalem to receive their king, which you can read about in, in um, Psalm chapter 24. Not Psalm chapter 24, Psalm 24. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So what's going to happen? He's going to go to Basra first. We read that in Isaiah chapter 63. 
He's going to go to Basra, the city of Petra. He's going to rescue the Jews out of that fortified city, that rock fortress of Petra. He's going to make his way all the way to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. Okay? So it says, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Azal, nobody knows what that means or where it is. It means reserved. So obviously it's a place for the remnant to go while God judges the nations. It says, yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Who are those saints that come with the Lord when he's riding on a white horse? It's us. It's us. It's his it's church clothed in white. Verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will dis- diminish. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day, day nor night. But at evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. Where does that light then come from? It comes from the Lord. You see that in Revelation. No more sun, moon, but the Lord is its light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it will occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be that the Lord is one and his name one. Now I want you guys to skip down to verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Okay, if you've got a queasy stomach, you might want to plug your ears for this one. But don't, because it's important, because it's the word of God. Okay, suck it up, buttercup. Okay, then their flesh shall be dissolved while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. Now, this judgment, when Jesus Christ comes back, is to find out, okay, who's going who's to remain in the millennial kingdom? That's what the purpose of this judgment is. What nations will remain? What nations will remain? And Jesus gives us insight into this in chapter 25 of Matthew. So go to Matthew chapter 25. Now this passage has been, I think, greatly understood by the majority because it's talking about the same judgment. People, a lot of people think it's talking about the great white throne judgment, but it's a different judgment because look at, just pay attention 
to what Jesus says. Matthew 25, verse 31 is where we're going to start. Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with, with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Okay, when the Son of Man comes with all his holy angels with him, we'll also be with him, all right, but also his holy angels. All the nations will be gathered before him. So notice that all the nations, the same as in Joel and then also in Zechariah, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What kingdom is that? It's the millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to come back and reign for a thousand years. A thousand years. And who's going to remain? Who is going to remain in that kingdom? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you, I, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Notice it's the righteous. They're not righteous because of what they did. They're righteous because they're sheep. Jesus Christ has saved them. They placed their faith in him. So these are tribulation saints. These are the nations that have, have said, we want to obey you. They were a blessing to Jesus' brethren, I believe, are the Jews at this time. It says, Lord, did, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you and a naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's the same judgment that happens directly after Jesus Christ comes back after the seven-year tribulation period. It's the same judgment. Then you'll also have the Bema Seat judgment, which believers will be judged for rewards. And then you'll have the Great White Throne judgment at the end of the thousand years. Okay, so just imagine that Jesus crossing the brook Kidron, and I just wonder if this is flashing through his mind. And what is he doing? He's passing over the brook Kidron. I wonder if he stayed there. Would all of a sudden the mountain, Mount of Olives, be, have a giant earthquake and be divided, and the valley come? And his throne of glory appear? And he could judge the nations of the world? 
Just imagine that. But he doesn't stay there. He crosses over and ascends the Mount of Olives. What does he do? He passes over the judgment. He passes over judgment. They have rejected him. His own people have rejected him. In just a few hours, they're going to crucify him. In just a few moments, they're going to come up the Mount of Olives themselves with torches and lanterns and swords and clubs ready to arrest him and kill whoever gets in their way. Jesus passes over the judgment. So think about that. We are to be imitators of Christ, imitators of God, it says in Ephesians. How ready are we to sit on our little throne of judgment? To judge those around us. We are so quick. So quick. And I'm not just talking about discerning between right and wrong, good and evil. I'm talking about we just judge people. Oh, that guy's an idiot. He just cut me off in traffic. How often do we do that? You know, I try to, when I'm driving here with the trailer, I try to drive really good. You know, because I want to be a good witness. I try not to speed. Especially, I just can imagine, like, you know, pulled over at the trailer, Horizon Christian Fellowship on the sides, sirens and lights flashing behind me, pulling me over. Yeah, good witness there. But how quick are we to judge? How quick are we to judge our wives, our children, our friends, our coworkers? We're so ready to judge. How about if we pass over judgment? How about if we keep going? We, we think the thought comes into our minds, we don't entertain it, we cut it off right there, and we keep going, and what do we do? We sacrifice ourselves. What did Jesus have to do to forgive us? To pass over judgment. He was on his way to the cross. We have to die to ourselves. We have to give the Lord his place as Lord and judge. Rather than being so ready to bring a judgment and condemnation against others. We are to live a crucified life. Right, Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How about if you give yourself for that other person that you want to judge? To die to yourself. When Jesus died, when he's hanging on that cross, what did he do? He gave up all his rights. He gave up his right to judge them at that moment. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He died to forgive. What do we have to die to? Maybe just a little pride, a little vengeance. We have to die to vengeance, right? We want to get back at people. We want to go after them. We want, to, we want to uphold our reputation and our pride, so we go after them. And what do we say? Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. 
I want what's mine. I want what's coming to me. That's what we're saying rather than dying to ourselves and saying, the Lord's the judge. The Lord's the judge. Now, again, I'm not talking about like what Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, but it's talking about hypocritical judgment. What I'm talking about is getting back at people, taking vengeance, taking, keeping your rights. Okay? As a Christian, you are crucified. You have no rights. You have no rights. You are a follower of Jesus Christ now. Your rights are bound up with him. They're bound up with him. And that is more rights than anybody in this world will ever have. Go to, um, I think it's Matthew 18. Let me double check. Yes, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And every time I think of forgiveness, I think of this parable. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. So, a number that you can't count. You're really going to keep track of that many times you have to forgive somebody? No, you're not. Verse 23, Matthew 18, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now 10,000 talents is 6,000 denarii, okay, which kind of means nothing to us because it doesn't make any sense. But as we go on, we're going to see what a difference is. So just think it's 6,000 denarii. This would be the equivalent of about $12 million. $12 million. Who has $12 million to pay somebody back with? I sure don't. Okay? But that's like sin. Every time we sin, we keep accumulating debt. Every time we sin, we accumulate debt. We owe God something that we can never pay. Okay? Okay, verse 25. But he was not able to pay his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore, therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So a hundred denarii, it's not even close to what he owes. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and sold, told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father 
also will do to, eat to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Do you see how important it is to forgive? God has forgiven you a debt that you could never possibly pay back. An eternal debt. A debt that you will be delivered over to the tortures to hell where God's wrath will be poured out on you for all of eternity. It's an eternal debt that you owe God. So how much more should we forgive each other these little squabbles here on earth? How much more should we forgive each other? Read that. Verse 35 again. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. And then what do most people say? Well, once saved, always saved. You know? Once saved, always saved, and they think that's going to protect them? Are you real, do you really understand the gravity of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you understand the sacrifice that he made? Do you understand the debt that you had that he washed away? If we don't forgive others, can we really say we understand that or even believe it? Probably not. So we are to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and let Christ shine through us by how we forgive each other. To let him shine through us. That we could win the hearts of those around us for him. This life is so short, guys. It's so small, but it has such great significance. Pretty soon, we're going to close our eyes and never open them again on this earth, at least until we come back with Jesus, right? So how much more should we forgive each other? How much more should we forgive each other? You guys are going to have to forgive me. I say stupid things. I make promises that I don't keep. I do all kinds of stuff. My wife's going to have to forgive me more than all of you, though. Now, I do want to stay balanced in the scripture. We are to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. But there's also a time when we say enough is enough. Right? There's a time when somebody is unrepentant and they won't turn from their sins and you say, I cannot, well, I cannot have fellowship with you. I cannot have fellowship with you. That doesn't mean you don't forgive them. No, I forgive you. You don't owe me anything. But our fellowship is broken. I think of 1 Corinthians 5.11. Now, this is speaking strictly of discipline within the church. But it says in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone who is named a brother, so who's a Christian, who's a Christian, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a um, reviler, or a drunkard, or extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. Your fellowship is broken. Now, if they repent and they come back, and if they're truly repentant, then you receive them. You receive them. You forgive them, Right? You have fellowship with them again. But as long as they're walking in such a way that is contrary to Christ, which is um, vile in God's church, 
which damages God's church. They're a predator, okay? They're covetous, they're stealing. They want things that aren't theirs. They're an idolater. They won't worship the one true God. They worship everything else. They're sexual and moral, right? They're a fornicator or homosexual, or they're, they won't repent of pornography. It says, don't, don't even eat with such a person. You break fellowship. Now, again, that is speaking of church discipline. But there's also a time in our lives when we say, I can no longer have fellowship with you. And I say this because I think of um, women who are being abused by their husbands or vice versa, or children who are abused by their parents, you know, to where their life's in danger, where there's physical harm, okay? I think about the life of King David. King David is, first he's a shepherd boy, right? Then he gets called from the shepherd fills, and he goes, he fights Goliath, and then he becomes Saul's servant. So every time Saul would have um, that... Uh, disturbing spirit come upon him from God because God gave him over. Okay, He wouldn't obey him. God gave him over to, to demons. And Saul, every time he's disturbed, David would come in and play the harp. Now David had been fighting, leading Saul's army, and all the people are praising him. And Saul knows that God's hand of favor is upon him and that David will be king. And so Saul looks at him with hatred and he takes his spear and he throws it thinking, I'm going to pin David to the wall. I'm going to pin David to the wall. And he does this twice. Finally, when, and David is always just gracious, he keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. He keeps serving his king with a full heart. He keeps fighting the king's battles. He keeps doing all these things, serving, serving, serving the king. But one day he finds out Saul's getting his men together, and he's going to kill David. He finds out from his best friend, Jonathan, who is actually Saul's son. He finds out, my father's going to kill you. Run for the hills. Run for your life, David. So David takes off. But does he ever raise his hand to the Lord's anointed, to Israel's king? Never. Twice he could have killed Saul. One time he's walking through the camp, while all the men are sleeping, the Lord had put a deep sleep on everybody in Saul's camp. Saul's laying there. David takes his water bottle or water jug, whatever it was, probably a skin of some sort, and tells us, Saul when he's leaving, Saul, I could have speared you last night with a spear. Not spared you, but speared you. And then another time, Saul goes into the cave. David and his men are hiding in there. And uh, Saul goes in to cover his feet which is an idiom for saying he's going to the bathroom, okay? He goes into the cave. He's using the facilities. And David goes up, cuts off the hem of his garment, probably the tallit. And when Saul's leaving, he says, my king, isn't this yours? Saul knew from that moment that David could have slaughtered him twice, and David never did. He never raised his hand to the Lord's anointed. Even when his men wanted to kill him, said, when he's in the cave, they said, let us take him now. He says, no, God forbid that we should touch the Lord's anointed. And doesn't allow him to do it. 
he lets the Lord give him the kingdom. He never takes vengeance on him. And that is the same kind of heart we would have. Sometimes fellowship is broken, but at the same time, we're not trying to get back at the person. We're not trying to ruin their lives. We're not trying to let them know how powerful we are and how hurt we are. Because isn't that funny how we do it? We get hurt, then we want to hurt that person twice as bad as they hurt us. That's not what we should do. We are to forgive. And even if fellowship is broken, we do not raise our hand to them. Now let's go on. We'll see if we make it through the rest of these 11 verses. It says, He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, so again, verse 1, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. That garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? The olive press is what, is what Gethsemane means. This was probably a place, it says... Um, that he went into this place, he entered it. That means it was most likely a walled garden. It was owned by somebody and had been given over to Jesus to, to stay in. And we see that this is a place where Jesus continually goes. In John 7, and 8.1, it says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He went to this garden. Then Luke 22.39, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and his disciples also followed him. So this is a place where Jesus goes continually. It's his custom to go there, to take his disciples there, to teach his disciples there, to pray there, to study the word of God there. They're making noise behind us, so it's, it's nobody in here dropping stuff. <laughs> they all thought it was you, Mike. <laughs> but I just wonder... That's where Jesus, they, Judas knew that that's where he would find Jesus. In a place of prayer, of teaching, of seeking out the Lord. Where do people find us? If somebody were to go and look for you at a certain time during the day, would they know where to find you? He's in his closet. Not literal closet, maybe. Maybe you do go to a literal closet. But it's a place of prayer. It's down in your basement. Maybe it's the laundry room. You know? The laundry room's a really good place, especially if it's going because, you know, the rest of the family can't hear you crying out to the Lord. You know? Where do they find you? Where do people find you? On Sunday mornings, do they find you? Oh, I know that guy. He's, he's, he's going to church. I know where to find him if I need him. Where do people find you? Also, this, would, this garden would be a very unsafe place for Jesus. Right? There's no shield of the crowds to protect him. If they want to take him by secret, to put him on trial and then to kill him, which is what they do, they want to take him from somewhere where there's not going to be a bunch of opposition. They're going to go to a place where it will be easy to take him. And that's where Jesus finds himself and where Jesus puts himself because Jesus is giving himself over to them. Nobody takes his life. He gives it up of his own accord. This is also the place in the other Gospels that record 
that Jesus is praying three times. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And where the disciples are sleeping. And Jesus tells them, could you not keep watch with me for one hour, Peter? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This is the place where all of this happens. It's the olive press. And we find out in Mark that this is the place where the wrath of God or the weight of sin comes down upon him. And as he's praying, his sweat becomes as great drops of blood. The capillaries under his skin break from the stress, and he begins sweating blood. This is that place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 3, it said, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, and detachment is literally a cohort. cohort okay? This isn't just like 10 or 15 guys. This is hundreds. Hundreds. This could be between 200 and 1,000 men. A cohort was a tenth part of a legion. A legion is 1,000. Is it 1,000 or is it 10,000? I think it's 10,000. It's a tenth part, so it's 600. Now, it could be a part of that, which would be about 200, but either way, there's between 200 and 1,000. That's a cohort. Plus, you have, it says, an officers from the chief priest. So you have temple police coming. And um, they came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. You have, also have Malchus leading the way as the high priest's slave, probably as a representative of the high priest. And they have torches and lanterns. Now, during Passover, there's always a full moon. Okay? There's always a full moon. Jerusalem is lit up bright with this full moon. You know, they don't have air pollution like we would have today, light pollution or anything like that. The moon, the stars are going to shine brighter than we could possibly imagine. Unless you've been to like Alaska or something, you know, where you've just seen, yeah, Mike's been, my wife's been when she's in the Coast Guard. And uh, if there's a clear night, you'd probably be able to see the moon like no other place on, in the world. But why would they have these torches and lanterns? And probably because they're thinking, we're going to go on a search for him. He's going to run. He's going to hide. We're going to have to find him. We're going to have to shine light in bushes and all kinds of stuff. So that's why they take lanterns and torches. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Now, just imagine that he knows all things that are going to come upon him, every slap in the face. He knows when they're going to pull out his beard. He knows the lashes from the cat of nine tails that he's going to receive. He knows the piercing of his hands and his feet. He knows every punch, every whack with a staff. He knows everything that's going to come upon him. He knows the the thorns that are going to pierce his brow. Everything. And so what does he do? He's courageous. He's courageous. He steps forward and says, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Why did he say that? Why didn't he just say, I'm right here. He said, whom are you seeking? He knows that they're seeking him. So why does he say that? It's to secure his disciples. If they say Jesus, the Nazarene, then they're not seeking the rest of them. They're committing to him. He's getting them to commit to arresting him and no one else. 
says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's literally Jesus the Nazarene. And I think that's important. We're going to see in a minute. Jesus said to them, I am, and again, he is italicized. That means it's supplied by the translators. I am, ego emi, I am that who I am. What did God say to Moses on the mountain in chapter 3 of Exodus? Tell them that I am has sent you to them. I am. Jesus is saying, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. So literally, again, it's Jesus the Nazarene that they ask for. And if um, you'll remember the prophecy, Matthew 2.23, it says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. What is a Nazarene? What does that mean? A lot of people think that that's the Nazarite vow. That's not what it's speaking of. Go to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. You got your poetical books. You got Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. And then you have Jeremiah. Okay, so Isaiah, it's almost in the middle of your Bible. In the Old Testament, it says, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, branch is the Hebrew word netzer. Netzer. Jesus is the branch. And you see this all through, especially the book of Isaiah. The branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked, Righteousness shall be the belt on his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So when they come to him and they say, he says, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. What are they saying? They're giving him a messianic title, and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. He was placed in Nazareth, so he would be called a Nazarene, which goes back to the Hebrew word netzer. Netzerine. He's the branch. They should have just said, um, the branch of David come forth, the son of David. They gave him a messianic title as they, they say this. Verse 6, it says, Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now that's just so awesome. Just imagine that, two, six, two to six hundred men. Jesus says, I am. And they draw back and then they fall to the ground. Okay, look at how it's worded. They draw back, and then they fall to the ground. They fall prostrate on their faces. They fall back and then fall to the ground. That is how you respond to divine revelation. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you respond to the word of God, to the name of God, to the great I am on your face. We do it out of adoration, and love, knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us, but the unbeliever, they do it out of fear. An uncontrollable fear 
came upon those men that night? Didn't he just strike them with the rod of his mouth? Like it said in Isaiah 11, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He just struck them with the rod of his mouth. He said, I am. And they fell to the ground. So they fall on their faces. I love what Augustine, St. Augustine said. He said, what shall he do when he comes to judge? Who did this when he was about to be judged? What shall be his might when he comes to reign? Who had this might when he was about to die? Do you understand what that's saying? Just think about it. He's about to die. He's about to be judged. And yet he who is going to be judged had this kind of power. When he said, I am, and they fell to their faces, what's going to happen when he comes back to judge? When he really does come to judge at the brook Kidron, at the valley of decision. Verse 7, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, or again, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, I'm just thinking about this. Now, the, the rational thing to do would to be... Would, when he says, whom are you seeking, after they pick themselves up and just thinking, what just happened? And he asked them again, whom are you seeking? I would probably say, Bob, I think he's over there. And just go and get out of there as fast as you can. But sin is not rational. Rebellion against God is not rational. Am I right? It's never rational. Never. Have you ever wanted something so bad and you know it's not good for you? You know probably can't afford it. You're going to go into debt. Have you ever wanted something so bad and out of, in, in the face of being rational about it, you go and get it anyways? The desires of your flesh are strong. The desires of your eyes, the pride of life, they are so strong. Sin is determined and persevering. Sin is persevering. That's why it has to be killed by the Spirit of God. I mean, just think about it. You know it's wrong. You know it's going to hurt other people, and yet you do it anyways. Yet you do it anyways. Jesus is a righteous light that's shining in the world, showing the world its depravity, and no matter what, they want to squelch that light. Why? Because sin is persevering, and it is determined. Just imagine what these men are thinking. Well, we got orders from the chief priests that he's ruining the temple business. Remember when he comes in twice and he overturns all the tables of the tax collectors, the money changers, those who's bought and sold doves and everything like that, and he gets them all out of the temple complex? That money would go to the high priest. That money would go to the temple complex. They were ripping off the people so that they could line their pockets. They're going to lose their jobs if they don't do this. Also, Jesus may be bad for peace with Rome. Right? They're afraid that Rome's going to come and take their place, their position, which is what Caiaphas said. So it's better for one man to die than the, than the whole nation perish, is what Caiaphas said, speaking of Jesus. So verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, 
I have lost none. So where did Jesus speak? Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Let's say um, John 17, 12, in the previous chapter, Jesus said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he's going to lose none of them, body or soul, before the appointed time. And he'll never lose them. Because when they die, they're going to be with him. And one of these days, he's going to wreck us, wreck us, resurrect us, and take us body and soul to be with himself. All those that the Father gives to Jesus will never be lost. You have been given to Jesus, therefore he will never, ever lose you. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand. He and the Father are one, he says in John 10. Yes, he said in John 6, 39, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Does that give you hope? Do you believe that? That you can never be lost, no matter what kind of punches this world gives you? No matter what kind of trials or tribulations you're going through, you will never be lost to God. You are his. You belong to him. You are bought with the price of his precious blood. And I love what John Gill said. He was an old Baptist theologian and commentator. He says, Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none, which though it has a particular respect to the apostles, is true of all the elect of God who are given to Christ. And shall none of them be lost, neither their souls nor bodies, for Christ's charge of them reaches to both. Both were given to him, both are redeemed by him, and both shall be saved in him with an everlasting salvation. He saves their souls from an eternal death and will raise their bodies from a corporal one or a bodily one. Wherefore, that his care of his disciples with respect to their bodies as well as their souls, with respect to their temporal lives as well as to their, their eternal happiness might be seen. So we're never going to be lost. And they would never be lost. Jesus is still going to die for them. And they have a mission to go out and spread his gospel through the world. Okay, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Malchus means king. King. A sword that Peter has, probably more of a dagger. It's a, I don't even know if it's a Roman short sword. It's, it's, it's a small sword, maybe more of a knife, and he just goes in, probably all clumsy, you know, he's a fisherman, he's not a soldier, and he goes for a strike his head, probably, or maybe his throat, but he cuts off his right ear. Why the right ear? Now, when you see something like this in Scripture, something so definite, I would say, go back. Look up every time you see the word or the phrase, like the right ear. Okay, what significance does the right ear have? Okay, now I would want to point out, this is Malchus. He's the high priest's slave. He probably has all the authority of the high priest while they're going out to take Jesus. He has all the authority. He's in charge, right? He's the one that's been given charge to go and arrest him. So what's so important about the right ear? Exodus 29, 20 says, 
Then you shall kill the ram. This is talking about a sacrifice and um, sanctifying the priests. Then you shall take the ram, take some of its blood, put, the, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of their sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on their big toe, their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. So you see this, almost this exact same verse five more times, all in the book of Leviticus, talking about consecrating the, the priests, okay, the high priests. Why the right ear? Why do you put blood on the right ear? To sanctify the ear so he can hear the word of God. What did Peter just cut off of Malchus? His right ear. He's the one with the authority from the high priest. The high priest isn't there, so hey, let's cut off the right ear of Malchus instead. No longer can you hear the word of God. No longer do you have the authority, are you consecrated to hear the word of God. And just thinking about that, how often do we cut people's ears off? You know, I know you guys knew that one was coming. You know, we come in all clumsy with the Bible, with the word of God. We end up legalistic or something like that. And we just start lopping ears off. Swinging wildly. People can no longer hear the word of God. And what happens to this man, Malchus? Does Jesus come in, take his ear, probably out of the dirt, and heal it? Yes. Jesus must fix the damage we do. And I pray that he does so. But we should have fear when we're wielding the sword of the word of God. We should have great terror. We should have great concern with how we're doing it. Be so careful. You guys belong to God. And if I come here unstudied, unprayed, woe to me. Somebody's ear might get cut off. And it's going to block them from hearing anything else unless the Lord comes and heals it. Because what will people say? I'm not going to church anymore. That guy was a jerk. Pulling out that sword and lopping my ear off. So Jesus has to heal it. Also, I think this is what happens when we're out in the flesh. When we try to serve God in the flesh, we do damage. I wonder if Peter had been praying instead of sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. I wonder if he had been watching in prayer, praying for his Lord, praying with his Lord, all about the mission of Jesus Christ. Because what did he, what did he do by doing this? He opposed Jesus' mission. He opposed it. His, his mission is to die, to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he opposed it. If he would have been in prayer, I can only imagine he would have had a different perspective, thinking Jesus has to die. Believing the scriptures. Knowing what, is, what it is he had to do. But instead, he just goes in wildly and starts lopping ears off. And the other thing is, Jesus healed him, and that was mercy on Peter. He just struck the high priest's servant, the one who had the authority of the high priest, just as if he'd struck the high priest himself. 
he should have been on that cross too with Jesus. Jesus heals him, cleans up the mess, and Peter's saved from the death sentence. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? What, what's in the cup? Shall I not drink the cup? So if you were to read Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'd see what's in the cup. It's called the cup of his fury, the cup of God's indignation and his wrath. I mean, think of it this way. Jesus Christ drank our hell. He drank our hell. He drank the judgment of God that belonged to us himself. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? That's what he had been praying in the garden. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Obviously, it's not his father's will. There was no other way for him to redeem mankind. There was no other way. That was the only way was for him to die. So he took the cup and he drank it all for us. And I think that goes all the way back around. He crossed the Kidron. He passed over the judgment and he took the cup. He died for us so that we could be forgiven. Isn't it awesome? Isn't it glorious? Because this world is awful. This world is awful. Our bodies are falling apart. This world is falling apart. We hear of our brothers and sisters being persecuted. We hear of horrible things happening all over the place. And yet we have a reigning king who loved us and drank the cup for us. So we got to get that message out. Get that message out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Jesus, we thank you for not judging us for our sins, Lord, but for taking that punishment upon yourself, for justifying us, for giving us your righteousness to our account, Lord. Lord, we don't owe the Father a dime because you paid it all. Think of the hymn, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So we thank you, Lord, and we love you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we'll do communion. Go ahead and take it. It's right over there. We'll take it together.